The New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome again to In Town, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. And I don't know if you have been here the last two weeks uh, that you've realized or noticed how complex these texts have been that we're preaching on, that we're looking at. Uh, it's really the, the heart and the meat of the distinctiveness of Christianity, of the gospel itself. Um, this is living by faith and not by sight is sort of the crux of spirituality. And so we need help. I need help as we encounter this text. So let's pray. Father, as we think about this text, this ancient text, we know that all of us here need something different, and yet we all need the same thing. We all come in here with different pathways, different places on our journey, on our spiritual, spirituality, different needs, different burdens, different hurts. Some of us are burning alive with pain and heartache and relational conflict. Some of us, the week has gone pretty well, and we're happy, and job is, our job is cruising along. And Lord, we need you to meet us in different ways, in unique ways. We need the person of Jesus and the hope of the gospel to meet us in our personality, in our particularities. But we all need the same thing, and that is hope. We need peace. We need the gospel. We need a word from you that says things are going to be okay. Not because we can make it, not because necessarily even our circumstances will change, but because you will be with us in our circumstances. Wherever we're coming from, whatever our questions might be, whatever our doubts might be, Lord, let that be made real to us. Would you illuminate that hope that is present in Jesus? Would you illuminate it for us in this text? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been around in town and you've heard uh, more than five or six of my sermons, you know that I love Pixar movies, and they find their way into my illustrations quite a bit, even though almost all of them make me cry, and I hate to cry. Um, So I can't watch the first 15 minutes of Up ever again. I won't do it. I was just weeping like a child in the first 15 minutes. And now that I have a junior in high school and I'm thinking about him going to college, Toy Story 3 is out. I will never be able to watch that again, maybe in a few decades, but it just turns me into a shivering, weeping mess. Well, besides tugging on our heartstrings, what makes Pixar movies so good 
it's not because of the animation, although it's beautiful and well done, but if you watch Toy Story 1 today, which was made 22 years ago, the animation is, no longer looks that great, but the story is so good. And you can watch the story of Toy Story 1 over and over because it's so compelling and it's so gripping. And if you read about Pixar, if you hear interviews with some of the story writers, they'll admit that they're actually recasting old stories. They're retelling things that are very ancient, ancient myths, ancient arc narratives that they've figured a way to tell in new ways. They're mining what Joseph Campbell calls arc narratives or monomyths. These would be like a protagonist that is struggling outside of his or her comfort zone. They're thrust into this world that's unexpected, and they have to learn new skills and become someone different. A hero having his or her polar opposite come into their midst and having to deal with that. Or a rat who wants to be a chef in a French restaurant. That one's as old as the hills. In The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell distilled all of these arc narratives into a very few simple motifs, and one of them goes like this. A hero living in her very ordinary world one day wakes up and gets a call for adventure and is sent off into a strange and scary world that she's not familiar with to conquer an adversary and return with increased wisdom. If you watch the Pixar movies, if you watch really any good film, you'll see that one repeated quite often. And in the Toy Story narrative, Woody the Cowboy is Andy's favorite toy. He's a leader. He is the leader of the community of toys. So what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to Woody? What would make him most uncomfortable? How about a shiny new space toy taking his place? And causing him to rethink who he is without his identity as Andy's favorite, without all of his responsibilities, without all of his prestige as being the leader of the community of toys. Woody has to learn to live in a different alternative narrative, a different story, if you will. He has to grow and he has to change and he has to have faith that this new way of living is ultimately the best and ultimately most true. And it ultimately, ultimately makes the most sense of himself and his world. And this is the stuff of great novels and great films and great TV. The Bible, friends, isn't a set of laws or a set of doctrines or just instructions for life. It contains all of those things, of course, but At its essence, the Bible is a great story. Like all good stories, it has a great hero. The whole narrative of the Bible revolves around one person, the hero, the life and the history of Jesus the Christ. But it's also full of smaller heroes, and these are the men and women who learn to live by this alternate Art narrative, this alternate story that the Bible is telling, the one, ones who willingly give up their prestige, their way of thinking, their way of making their way in the world, their identity, their former way of success, 
the ways that they've storied themselves, and they choose to re-narrate their own lives through the plot line of the Bible. In fact, to live today as if the new world that the Bible says is coming is in some way present and real in their lives at this moment. And I would argue that there's even another set of heroes, and that's you. That's you who choose to read the Bible and believe its story and to re-narrate your story through its central plot line, to live your lives and choose your identity and your future to align with the identity and the future of Jesus, the hero of the story. Well, Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians that this heroic journey takes place not in an imaginary world of monsters who go to work or cars that talk, but in the everyday lives of financial stress and relational conflict and growing old and job setbacks and losing loved ones. He talks about these incredible, mysterious, sophisticated, complicated theological concepts but he's extraordinarily realistic. He's extraordinarily grounded in how he applies them. In verse 2, he begins to outline for us how he is groaning but yet confident. And he says, meanwhile, I love that, meanwhile, meanwhile, all of these great theological concepts are bubbling up in your head and you're giving them thought. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. There are three words that wherever we're coming from, even if we have not yet decided to become a Christian, we can certainly relate to this sort of existential angst of groaning, of longing, of being burdened, that life never feels settled. For any of us, we get over some hill that we conquer, and life feels settled momentarily, but then something changes. Life is dynamic, and we feel like we're always on a quest for home, for settledness, for rest, for lasting peace, for home. But we feel tied down by the vicissitudes of life, by our own shortcomings, by the mundane things that we have to deal with, balancing our checkbook. Maybe you do that. I don't do that. But that just popped in my head as an everyday thing, and it's something that I don't do every day. That's strange. By our failures, by all of these things, we feel weighed down. So Paul is being very realistic, in fact, empathetic with the Corinthians' journey, and with yours. Because even if you are a Christian and you believe that the resurrection has really happened, you still live in this world, in this momentary reality, in this body, which Paul calls a tent, not in our eternal dwelling, which is unlike a tent, stable and built by God. Paul, you see, as we try to hit on regularly from the pulpit, because it's so different from the common conception of Christianity and of heaven, 
He's laying out for us a very sophisticated, embodied spirituality that points to a future, an eternal home, yet one that honors and gives meaning to our embeddedness, our embodiedness, our situatedness in this present world. And this flew in the face both of the the dualism in the ancient world that said, if only I wasn't weighed down by this body, by mortality, if only my soul could escape to heaven. That's what death represented for many people in the ancient world, this Greek dualism that valued the spiritual over the material. And so the afterlife was seen as the final release of the immortal soul from the confines of this mortal body. But neither is he just running out the clock, recommending to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die, the sort of nihilistic hedonism that says, well, this body doesn't really matter, this earth doesn't really matter because it's all going to be burned up, so I'll live how I want and enjoy the afterlife. For Paul, it's not running out the clock or longing to be simply rid of the body so that he can be with Jesus spiritually disembodied, but he longs to have this life, this present reality with all of its mortal ills, verse 4, swallowed up by life, swallowed up with life. He envisions not a disembodied afterlife, but he envisions a new creation. He envisions, in fact, a new body an eternal dwelling that is better than the tent, but not simply spiritual. Remember what we talked about last week? Because of these things, because of these great eternal truths, therefore we do not lose heart. Today, in our embodied reality, though outwardly we are wasting away, our tent, which is susceptible to weather, to being blown over, It's not made very well. It's in decay. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. You see, the narrative of the Christian journey is not simply to be rid of something, our body, our work, our physicality, but it is to clothe all of those things with immortality. It is to live in our bodies now physically, being clothed, with immortality. And that is not a work that we do. That is a work that God does at our invitation. God, make me new. Give me immortality. It is a work that He fashions. The narrative of the Christian journey is not to be rid of something, but it is knowing our purpose, knowing our story, knowing the goal of creation, knowing that the longings that we have, the groanings that we have, in this body, will never be fully satiated in this life. It is to be on a journey to our eternal home, or maybe better, more accurately put, to be on a journey where our eternal home is coming to us. The first Toy Story movie is really a story about the search for identity. It's about the search for a purpose and the search for meaning. And both of the heroes, Woody and Buzz, are wrestling with, who am I? 
all this new data is coming, and I don't know what to do with it because it's shaking up my reality and how I've always thought about myself. Who am I? And what is my purpose in life? And there's this great line that's very classic. Woody, even in the midst of his existential angst, is able to help Buzz understand his meaning and purpose. And he's telling him over and over, you're not a space ranger. Wake up. You are a toy. You came in this cardboard spaceship. You're not the real Buzz Lightyear. You're just a child's plaything. And the movie tells the story of Buzz coming not only to understand this intellectually, but to inhabit this new story, to inhabit this new narrative. And after moping around for a while, because he's no longer a space ranger, he begins to fully take on this identity, and he begins to see this new purpose. He may not be the potential savior of the universe, a lesson that all of us have to learn (laughs) almost daily. He's not the real Buzz Lightyear saving the universe from Zerg. He's just a toy. But here's the thing. We think of that as a demotion, right? He's not the savior of the world. He's just a toy. But it's not a demotion. It's not something less because now he's living according to truth. He's living according to the way things really are. He's no longer living a lie. He's no longer pretending. What did Paul tell us last week? That we are merely jars of clay. There's humility in that, but there's also great dignity because these jars of clay, these tents, these bodies carry a treasure of inexhaustible wealth. The gospel, the truth, is carried in our bodies that we will live forever, clothed in inexhaustible light. All of our longings fulfilled, all of our groanings met, all of our brokenness mended, all of our sadness remedied, carrying on in physical bodies of immense strength and immense beauty. beauty. C.S. Lewis writes this beautiful line or paragraph in The Weight of Glory, and he says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Now, we hear stories every day, right, of people who choose to live apart from the dominant narrative. They've adopted an unusual or countercultural perspective. So, is that all that Paul is talking about here? We just need to think differently, change our perspective. And he says emphatically, no, that it's so much more than that. 
In the midst of groaning, longing, and being burdened, he has confidence because, verse 5, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose, that is immortality, being clothed in inexhaustible light, has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Guaranteeing what is to come. Friends, this is not just simply a new perspective or a change of outlook, but there is a certain future by which we live by now. And all of us do that, whether we believe in the resurrection or not, whether Jesus is our story or not. We have a future that we are living our lives today by. Paul says that the Spirit is given to Christians as a guarantee, as a deposit. When you put down a contract on a house, often you give a deposit, what's called earnest money, and it shows that you're actually serious about buying this house, that you don't have 14 contracts out there all at once and just waiting for the right one. You want this house. And so you put down a percentage of the overall payment so that when you finally close on that house, that money, that earnest money goes into your payment, your down payment. And so it's a deposit. It's meant to guarantee that you're actually going to show up at that closing. And it gives the person on the other end confidence that you're going to make good on your promise to purchase this home. Well, that's exactly what Paul is telling us, that the Spirit is in this life. It is a guarantee. It is a down payment on a future reality that He will show up for you, that your faith is not in vain. The first installment toward the Christian's full possession of an eternal house in heaven is the Spirit. And so notice, he lives now by faith and not by sight. I was talking to my, the, not my, but the cashier at Fred Meyer's. I call her my cashier because I always go to the same person. She's rather slow, but we talk about some interesting things. And I've gotten to know her over the years, and she asked me last night what what my sermon was on today, and I said, oh, you know, walking by faith and not by sight, pretty much the essence of spirituality. And she said, yep, you're right about that. And I don't know where she is spiritually, but she knows as well as I do that we've stumbled here, haven't we, upon the very crux of spirituality, upon the very center of what it means to be a Christian in this world, is living by faith and not by sight, one of the most foundational elements to be a Christian. And to live by faith is to walk. Walk is the other word that could be there for live. It is this ongoing choosing to live by faith. It's not a once-and-done type of thing. Justification, Christianity, salvation is a once-and-done thing, but you choose to walk in that daily. And it is not a belief simply in the immaterial over the material, not at all, but it represents a conviction about what is yet to be seen compared to what we can now see. And it's living, it's walking by a different narrative. And this, friends, is where we descend, where we move beyond dogma, where we move beyond just practices of religion. But it is a 
deep-seated conviction that we are inextricably linked to one another by something that is much bigger than us and much more real and much more trustworthy than even our own thinking. And we are practicing, living, walking by leaning into that future reality now. As Madeline Ingalls says, sometimes things need to be believed in order to be seen. And as you practice this, as the Holy Spirit indwells you, you begin to see things that you never knew existed. And that reality becomes more and more real to you in your existential journey. The heroes of the best stories do that, don't they? They choose to live contrary to prevailing norms, conventional wisdom, even to their own perceived, uh, perceived well-being. They move against it because they can see something different that other people can't see. These are the stories of heroes. And many of you are heroes. Many of you, in fact, are my heroes. Some of you have given up a lucrative career and all the esteem that comes from that to stay at home and raise children because you see something in those children that other people don't see. They're yours. You want to invest in them. And so you choose to give up something in order to invest in them. That's a heroic story. You've chosen to fasten yourself to this relationship, even though you've had to offer forgiveness more times than you ever thought possible, because you see something in that relationship that other people can't see, that other people have given up on, but you stick with it. You stay. You fasten yourself to that relationship because you see something that other people can't or refuse to see, and that's heroic. Or, and this is where most of us are, in our minor heroic stories, that you simply press on in faith when your world seems dark and you've suffered incredible loss or heartache or personal demons and you're here this morning. You're here. You got up out of bed to come to be with God's people because you knew that you needed to be reminded of the story again in order to live your story with faith. You're here this morning leaning in, maybe wrestling with God, maybe wrestling with trust, maybe hoping that what He says about your life, that it will be okay, is actually true, that death and dying will not have the final word, but life will have the final word. If that's your story, if that's what you're living right now, well, you're my hero because that's hard and that is heroic. You are choosing to live by faith and not by sight despite the fact that few people choose to do that. You've chosen, or better said, you are choosing. You're choosing to live by what Jesus says, by His words and His life is actually true and not what your circumstances or even your immediate sense experience is telling you. And what does Jesus, the hero of the story, do? He does what all great heroes do and what we want our stories to connect to. 
He gives up His life so that others may live, so that, in fact, you may live. And I hope that if you're here this morning and you can't yet believe that, that you'll at least wish it was true, that you'll at least hope that it's true, that maybe that this story is so beautiful and so compelling that you would want it to be true, even if intellectually you can't quite get there yet, because that's the first step that a lot of us take in that we want it to be true, that God's love for you was so irrepressible that He sent His Son to live and die and redeem you and to be raised again so that you can be raised again, so that death doesn't have the final word, but in fact, life does, wiping away your sins and your shortcomings forever. That's what I hope that you'll hope is true, and you can lean into that. Continue coming, continue asking questions. We believe it is true. You see, the Bible is a story, but it's not merely a story. You see, it's His story. And the invitation to walk by faith and not by sight is based not simply upon words, but it is upon the beautiful, sacrificial, resurrected life of Jesus. And it's in His life that you can put your trust. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we pray that you would become more and more real to us. If we're here wondering, we pray that you would meet us. If we're here confident, we pray that you would meet us. If we're here as a long-standing Christian, but we are wrestling with doubt, we pray that you would meet us. Meet us in the gospel. Enable us to live, to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.